You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Live. For Real Vision, I'm Max Wheathy. I'm joined today by Warren Irwin, the president and CIO of Rosso Asset Management. Warren is one of the uh, most well-respected natural resources investors, and unlike many people in the space, he is known for not being a cheerleader. Uh, you get so much of that in, in the industry, and it's really refreshing to talk to Warren and get to hear somebody who's who's willing to uh, put out a bearish view on, on some of the metals that have made him a lot of money over the years. So I'm, I'm very very excited today. Warren, thank you so much. Oh, it's great. Great to hear, Max. All right. So we, we build this as, as the revenge of the miners, you know, where natural resources meet green energy. We're going to talk about some other things, but I think that's a great place for us to start. There's really two avenues that I want to go down today. One is batteries and the electrification of, of really the, the whole economy, a uh, global economy, and then as well, you know, uranium in particular as a, as a source of, of of uh, it's not a renewable, but it's it's not um, it's not a fossil fuel. So why don't we start with uranium? We saw a big pop at the beginning of the week uh, in some uranium equities. You know, is is was that just uh, is there any news to be tied to that pop? No, I think everybody in the uranium business is a little confounded as to uh, why the stocks are popping when the uh, when the spot uranium price is still around thirty, and because it's been re reasonably uh, reasonably stable here. Um, uranium amongst us miners is, uh, has a very unique place in everybody's heart, especially anybody who's been through a uranium bull market, because uranium bull markets are possibly the most fun bull markets to participate in. The fortunes that are made in a uranium bull market are, can be incredible. And that's why uh, guys like me are reasonably excited about uh, finally the world figuring out uh, that we can't power this new electric world we want with fairy dust. And frankly, uh, solar power and wind is not going to power this earth. Uh, we don't have the storage technology today. We, and, you know, I'm, I'm here in Canada. In the wintertime, you know, it gets dark at uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, it's overcast where I live here, probably two-thirds of the time all winter, so we can't rely on solar. and. The wind's not blowing, so how do I do? I just freeze up here in Canada. We need some uh, we need some real alternatives for power globally, and uh, without a doubt, uh, nuclear power has to be in the uh, in the in the mix. So you talked about you know the the previous bull run and and how much money was made in that time. Uh, I think it's worth talking about you know how long you've been interested in uranium i know at one point in time you said you were the you were the largest shareholder in next gen energy so how long have you been following this uranium trend and playing it in and out probably 10 to 12 years uh, i was involved in the last uranium cycle and you know it's a while ago probably 10 years or so ago a little bit more and uh it uh so I was involved then. I was involved in a you know handful back then, and uh, it was interesting. Then we basically went from about you know a handful of uh, uranium companies to several hundred during that bull market, 
And uh, as I caution people in playing this next uh, uranium bull market, is be very, very careful. This is not a Warren Buffett buy value type of play. This will be a massive, um, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a massive run in these stocks, and there will be anybody with a pulse will create a uranium company, and you don't want to own those uranium companies on the downside of the uranium cycle because uh, of the four to six hundred uranium companies last cycle, it got whittled down to probably less than twenty. So you had hundreds and hundreds of companies going out of business or being rebranded, uh, whether it be technology companies, gold companies, or whatever the flavor of the day uh, people wanted to get into after the uranium bull market ended uh, the last time. So where are we now? What, you know, how many companies are there out there and how many of them do you think are legit? And then what are the types of things that you're looking out for to push us forward into you know, the, the real throes of the bull market? Yeah, it's a very good question, Max. Uh, the good thing about the start of a bull market is we've had such a lousy uranium market for the last, uh, oh, basically post Fukushima. So since the Fukushima accident until today, the market has been pretty bad for uranium. So what's happened is it has really done all the investors work for them by weeding out many of the really bad ones, the outright scams. So what we're stuck with today is we have extraordinary development projects like NextGen, which is without a doubt one of the most economic and uh, economic mines of any commodity in the entire world, and it's in the process of being built over the next number of years. But also you've got a number of what I consider marginal projects, which are either have mining constraints or have costs of production that might be 50, 60, 70 dollars per pound, and spot uranium right now is 30. So those guys are sort of on the cusp. And so they will, they will be the next, uh, the next tier. But, but in order for, for you to make money in those names, you really do need a run in uranium so people know for a fact that they will indeed be economic. Because right now, a lot of them are not economic. The only significant one that I'm aware of that uh, I, I would really, you know, is definitely economic is next gen. And the remainder of them, they'll they'll have they all have their challenges, and they're not super great. And that's why they're not there aren't many, uh, if any, other than next gen uh, uranium mines under construction because we do need higher prices before we start seeing some uh, construction of some uranium mines. But so if one's playing the the market to a certain extent, when you get in early, there's a little bit less risk because the companies that are involved are real uh, that are that are in existence today. They are uh, run by quality people. The risk happens later in the cycle once um, all the Johnny-come-latelys join the party and there's goes from being less than 20, let's say, good uranium companies to being hundreds of companies because there aren't, 100, there aren't 200 really good uh, uranium projects in the world. That's, that is for sure. Okay, so what is going to move that spot market up? What is going to move the price of uranium up? Uh, we have huge, you know, disruptions in supply at least at the moment. A lot of people are citing that as as what is going to potentially start to move this this upwards. As companies like Cameco, they've got um, they've got contracts they've got to fill, and they're not producing nearly as much. So they're they're going to have to stop step into the spot market and buy uranium. Is this the catalyst that people have been waiting for? Yeah, well, you know, I have been uh, a little premature in calling a bull market, and uh, the only person worse than me was is the CEO of Chemical, right? <laughs> These guys have 
thousand times more information on the Iranian market than I do. I called it early, but they called it really, really early. And so the Iranian market is indeed, it's a tough one to call. And the part of the reason is there's about, you know, 190 million pounds a year of consumption of uranium and production in a typical year would be 140 million. So you've got this, um, you've got the, that delta there picked up by secondary supply. So secondary supply is a, um, is a bit of a wild card. So that, that makes it kind of wacky to try and predict it, okay? But what's happened in the last year or so is actually chemical, which is the second largest producer in the world, they have um, uh, shut down all production. Like they are producing not a little bit of urine, they're producing zero right now, like none, zero zip, nothing. They have long-term contracts to provide uranium to to um, to reactors, and so they're, you're exactly right. They have to go into the spot market to buy it. So um, that's a bit of an interesting one. And and Kazatoprom, the large, world's largest uh, uranium producer out of Kazakhstan, they are having issues with COVID, which is hurting their, uh, which is really hurting their production. And um, they're also using an interesting production technique. Um, in situ uh, recovery using uh, you know using acid, pumping acids into the ground and and pumping back the, the pregnant solution which would dissolve the uranium back up and stripping it out and, and recycling so um, there, it's interesting to see that w what will happen over the next number of years as to how reducing that type of production how they could ramp it up again because some people are concerned uh, the damage to the uranium reservoirs that could could occur with this fluctuation in production. So uh, we'll see what happens there. So on the on the production side, things do not look super great. And on the on the demand side, we've got a, a couple of unique things happening. Usually uh, utilities like to be conservative, so they'll enter into long-term con contracts with companies like, like Cameco to ensure that they have uh, uh, uranium supply out, you know, the next, several years so they're they're not uh, they're not beholden to the market into the spot price so not only do they block in the price but also lock in the supply from a reliable supplier and they've been playing it kind of cute in that they've been just playing the spot market because there has been some secondary players uh, putting out some uh, uranium into the spot market and Kazataprom has been selling into the spot market too so the dynamic is a, is a little little makes the utilities right now a tiny bit vulnerable and especially when um, you've also got chemicals, like you'd mentioned, has to go into the market to buy spot uranium to even fill their long-term contracts. So it's quite a, a vulnerable situation. And then on, uh, on also on the demand side, you've got the Japanese figuring out that they've got to restart the reactors or they're not going to meet any of their climate goals. You've got um, the Chinese are building reactors. And I think right now the, the rough number is around 50 Nuclear reactors are being built around the world. There's a base of around 400, over 400, just over 400, around 440 reactors in existence today. Um, and the U.S. Has, has announced that they wish to to extend the life of some of their reactors, which is a, which is a good thing. So you've got the U.S. has figured out that you need, uh, we need some, you know, we all need good solid baseload non-CO2 generating electricity. And despite all the the hyperbole from uh, you know, environmentalists over the, the last half century since the Three Mile Island uh, incident, um, nuclear energy remains the safest form of energy generation uh, in the world today. And um, 
I'm especially excited about you know new technologies like uh, you may have heard the new modular reactors, and um, they're all, their fuel is already liquefied, so they're pretty much fail safe because you can't have a meltdown because your fuel's already melted down. So. Um, there's some really interesting new technology that are finally making it to the market despite years and years of lobbying against it by groups like Greenpeace and other misguided environmentalists who have, uh, as a result, damaged the, the, the world's climate way more than they've helped in the last 50 years. Um, can you imagine if uh, the boom of nuclear buildout from the 70s had continued and in the last half century we actually spent some money on R&D in the nuclear space? We'd be in a way better position today, but instead the last 50 years, um, Greenpeace has fought nuclear energy and all the other greenies have, and we just burned coal on the other side of that to generate power. So it's been an environmental travesty uh, fund and the, the protests funded by uh, these environmental groups, which have been backed by uh, you know a lot of players who don't want nuclear, namely the coal industry and other bad players like that. So it's been really a travesty the last half century that nuclear energy has not continued to develop. And I think right now we're starting to see it. We're back on track. The Chinese are back into nuclear. They're building reactors like crazy. They see it. And uh, and um, I think we're, we're at the beginning of, a, I think, a nuclear renaissance here. And uh, okay. look forward so to it. So with that being said, I wanted to switch into opportunities. You talked about Cameco, Kazatomprom, the two largest producers in the world. Um, there are other options to play it, like you have the uh, Yellow Cake in the UK, which is, I think, just like a, a holding uh, yeah. vehicle where they're, they're buying in the spot market and selling it. Um, and then you have uh, we have Brigitte asked a question about ro uranium royalty companies like like Uranium Royalty Co. So when you are looking at the different options that are out there for investors, you know how do you make sense of, of the different ways that you can play this? Well, the good thing is for uranium investors, you can play it a host of different ways. Um, the uranium royalty companies, I'll touch on that first, they're sort of uh, reasonably new. Um, and there are, uh, you know, the royalties they have, they're, they're gradually picking up royalties. So they're, they're pretty new. They're not as established as the royalty companies, let's say, in the, uh, in the gold business, like uh, Franklin, Nevada, for instance. Um, so um, that, that, that's really pretty niche here at the present time. Also, to play, play it for the, from the big cap point of view, the bigger investors may want to look at Kazata, Prom, and Cameco. Uh, I don't know how a big investor, like from a big, uh, big firm like a BlackRock, would would feel about buying Cameco, the world's second largest producer, but but that is actually not producing anything. So that's a that's a very interesting one because and that shows how interesting the uranium market is. Can you imagine if you you talk to any other co commodity business, let's say, and somebody said to you, Max, oh, the second largest copper producer in the world has shut down all their mines, like. That does not happen, and that is happening now in a market that has already got tremendous fundamentals. Uh, so it, 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 it'll be interesting. So that's so the blue chip guys will want to play Kazataprom, Cameco. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend the royalties unless people really have a, a, a you want to play. It's pretty niche right now. Then amongst the developers building a, a new mine, the, the ultimate one to play is NextGen. I'm a huge bull on that, huge fan of it. Um, the economics are tremendous. But then there's a number of players uh, that are the next tier down, which are, um, you know, don't have the economics of the next gen, but and then but will be players in the um, in the next uranium market. And some of them 
have a few warts. Uh, there's a few I'm not super big fans of, but but there's a next there's a next tier, and um, that you want to play, and that'll be that'll be like a like a Denison or a Denison, a Global Uranium, GoVX, um, Fission Uranium, and you know they all have their issues. Some of them are in bad jurisdictions. Some of them have really tricky mining conditions. Some of them are using new technologies to mine. So they all have their different risks. And uh, that would be on the little higher risk category. And then once the bull market starts, trust me, there'll be another 50 to 100 new baloney uranium companies that'll be super high risk. If you want to buy it five cents and watch it go to 50 cents, those would be the ones to to have some fun with. But they're just like, uh, they're for trading, not for owning, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yep. I gotcha. Well, uh, Chris asked, you know, what are your thoughts about junior miners like Encore Energy? You know, I'm sorry, I've never heard of them before. Uh, oh, it's an Encore. Are, are they? Uh, they're a uranium. Uranium company. junior, I guess. Okay. I mean, is that so, sort of that lower tier below next gen? They're not building out uh, a mine yet. You know, they're. I, I'm not sure if if Chris could actually write in a little bit and get and give some information on on what stage. Uh, Encore is at that might help. Um, yeah, it, w without knowing the name, um, I would. Uh, if you don't know the name, it's probably uh, that. That's probably a sign. Is that is that what you're trying to get at? I've never heard of the company, but I would imagine if I was uh, if I was a betting man, which is what I do for a living, I would uh, I would bet that they're uh, they're a newer entrance to, to the. The, and one, one of the new entrants, because uh, there are some people who have figured out that we we have a good shot here at a good uranium bull market, and they're stepping up. And um, the way I'm playing this bull market is, uh, it'll either happen or it won't. And if it doesn't happen, I, I have a good decent holding in next gen, which is we'll go into production. The cost of production is around uh, ten dollars a pound. The, the spot price is thirty, so the term price, let's say, might be forty dollars a pound. So they'll make pretty significant margins. So I'll, I'll make money whether or not there's uranium bull or not. But where I can actually make a huge amount of money is if uh, my thoughts on the uranium market and those of uh, some other other players uh, that understand it are correct. And if we do get a good uranium bull market, it, it could it is truly amazing what could happen. Yeah. Well, we got a question from Nick about one of the things that could could drive that bull market. He wants to know whether the Chinese have uranium stockpiled for these reactors they're building. Do they have contracts set up? Do they have uranium in in that they've already bought? How are they going to be able to power those reactors that you're talking about? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. <clears throat> the the uh, in the last uranium cycle, um, again, uh, and that was you know we, I was part of. Uh, a shareholder of Extract Uranium, we sold uh, a big Namibian uranium project to the Chinese. And so they put that into production. It may have been shut down now, but I think their cost of production is around $70 a pound. And a lot of it, like, that's the problem we've got right now with uh, with respect to chemical and a lot of the producers. The reason they're shutting down capacity, and sometimes they'll say it's COVID related, but the reality is for a lot of these guys, their, their cost of productions way above the current spot price. It's 50 to $70. In the case of Husab, my recollection is it's around $70. I'm not sure if they've shut down production uh, right now or not. So the Chinese have been trying to buy their own uh, uh, buy their own uranium. They've also taken a, a strategic interest in, uh, in fission uranium, which in my, uh, in my books has some uh, significant mining challenges. 
But, uh, you know, $100 uranium, I think, goes a long way to fixing a lot of challenges. So they've tried to take equity positions in some of these miners. And I'm sure they'd love to buy a stake of NextGen. I'm not sure the Canadian government would allow that. But, you know, we'll see. Perhaps uh, if they have a non-operating position, they, they may be allowed to participate with, uh, with NextGen. But uh, that's one way they're doing it. Uh, as far as uranium stockpiles, uh, countries... And this is why it's very difficult to really understand the uranium market because uh, what happens is countries view it very strategically, their uranium stockpiles, so they keep it very confidential. So I'm sure the, I'm sure the Chinese have stockpiled uranium. They also own interests in mines and own entire mines. So that's what they're doing. And um, I think with the, they'll be looking to, uh, to enter into some contracts with uh, some up and coming with some miners like uh, like Cameco, Kazataprom, and NextGen. Once NextGen gets into production, so they'll they'll be playing. The Chinese are very wise. They'll be playing it all three ways with from their stockpiles, long term contracts they sign, and from equity interest in uranium mines, and from uranium mines that they own 100% and operate. So that's where they'll be sourcing a lot of their uranium. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, when last time we talked, you mentioned that one of your favorite things to have happen is a junior miner that you own gets taken out by a major. In this case, could the Chinese maybe going and, and buying some of these undeveloped projects uh, sort of be the, the equivalent of that in the uranium market? And is that anything you're, you're looking out for? Yeah, well, the Chinese right now, they're, uh, they're kind of licking their wounds a little bit because, uh, you know, when we sold them extract, uh, in the last uranium cycle, and they got into production. Like production costs now are are quite high, so they they're I think a tiny bit timid, and I don't think their investment in fission has turned out super well for them either yet. So at this stage, I think they probably want to see those things do a little bit better, and they'll wait until perhaps the price of the the commodity goes up a bit higher. But where I see the Chinese possibly buying some. Um, uh, some companies would be the juniors that have uh, resources like um, Global Uranium and uh, Goviex, who are in Africa. Africa seems to welcome uh, Chinese investments in Chinese mining more so than North America would. And I know in Canada, um, um, there there are concerns about the the, the environmental and uh, employment standards of a Chinese-operated mine operating in a first-world country like Canada. Um, I think in time with Canadian partners, they could alleviate a lot of those concerns, but that is a concern. Whereas in Africa, uh, they operate lots of mines in Africa, and I think the Africans are a little bit more re relaxed about having Chinese-operated uh, mines in their, in their borders. Okay. So we talked about you know the, the Chinese changing position on it. We touched on the U.S. a little bit, but uh, we got a question from somebody who, who would like a little bit more on you know your take on the Biden administration's view on nuclear energy, given their focus on you know the greening of the economy. Yeah, I have not done a ton of research on uh, on the Biden's view. The only thing I've done is uh, I've obviously, like a lot of people on the, watching this, have. Uh, are aware that they've been trying to extend the life of a number of the, the nuclear <clears throat> reactors. So 
Um, I think it's like anything with the new Biden administration, things will become clearer over time. Uh, what I think I would like to see is um, them starting to be more receptive to some of the, the, the really the if I was the, if I were the Americans right now and uh, and we're seeing it here in Canada, let's not worry about the current light water reactors. Let's focus on the next generation reactors, the generation four reactors. They're way they're way safer. And they're modular, which means you could reduce the capital cost of them. So they're they're cheaper, they're safer, and they can be smaller, and they can be stacked in series to create whatever size power plant you want. So I'm to really understand that. I think you really need to uh, to see where the U.S. is with respect to backing that. And I've seen a lot of instances, certainly under the Trump administration, where they were very supportive of next generation reactors and the research and development along that. Obviously, Bill Gates is, is backing um, nuclear energy, although he uses instead of uh, a new material, he, he believes some of their technology can use some of the spent fuel as, uh, as uh, feedstock for the reactor. So um, Let's see over the next few months in the administration what how their view is on the next generation reactors, because that's, I believe, where the future is, is the Gen 4 reactors. What's interesting about China, too, I think they just commissioned their, their first ever nuclear power plant using Chinese-only technology. Wow. Yeah. Which they may have borrowed from the West, but... Yeah, what, yeah, what, is, what does that mean? Now? <laughs> well, um, I, I do want to change gears a little bit. It's been great to talk about uranium, but one of the other aspects of of your portfolio right now is is a bet still on electrification and still a bet on uh, sort of the the greening of the economy, but it's a little bit different play and and it's mostly sort of base metals, uh, nickel, copper. Uh, you believe steel is going to be incredibly important. So why don't you talk to me first? Let's start out, you know, with the the top level view, and then we can get into each of the the ways you can play it, and then specifically why you don't like some of the favorites of people who who are betting on the same trend, cobalt and lithium. Okay, well, my general view is there's two big trends here. In the, there's three big things investors need to, to know here about what's going on in the mining sector. And <clears throat> the first thing is um, uh, mining stocks relative to any other financial instruments are at historic lows. You could see the charts. Uh, you could graph them anywhere. Like uh, Commodities are super-duper cheap compared to, let's say, the S&P 500. I, and, and, and a lot of people are calling the bottom on that, basically saying they're just the valuations are so ridiculously cheap to the S&P 500 that we're at the, at the bottom of a commodity bull market. And, um, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs just put a piece out. They, they were thinking that way. And, of course, that's the way I, I think, too. I think we're in the beginning of a commodity bull market. Two, two driving factors behind that would be um, the, the big infrastructure projects. Like when we get out of this COVID there isn't a country around the world that won't be deficit spending uh, and putting some big capital projects to work. And in order, so you have to look at well, what what metals are needed for those capital projects and where are they coming from? The next two, the next one also is, uh, I think a lot of these big trillion dollar capital projects will be people will say, well, where, where are we going to spend our money? Do we need more bridges? And well, you know, we got enough bridges, we could repair a few. That's about it. We could, you know, we've already built out our roads. What are we going to do? Well, you know. We don't have a charging infrastructure for electrical vehicles, so we got to build out our charging infrastructure. And um, 
we need to build out our power in, in infrastructure. And if we're going to be putting, uh, you know, a million or several million cars on the road that are electric, we're going to need to put some money towards our power grid to make it more reliable. So uh, I think we're going to see those that the trillion dollar deficit spending for capital projects. And then we're going to see the electrification, the whole system whole electrical system in our world needs to be upgraded in order to allow that to happen. So there'll be some exciting times here for metals because you need metals to do this. End of story. And metals are so cheap versus the S&P 500 and other, and other sectors that it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's a pretty good time to think about it, seriously, frankly. Well, I know you like copper because it's the one that you say cannot be cut out. No matter which way uh, this all goes, copper will be a part of, of both of those trends. So can you talk to me a little bit about why you think copper is, is the one that can't be replaced and then you know, the maybe some companies that you think are, are best positioned. Yeah. The, now, the reason I, I think copper, I'll just explain that a little bit, is when you're looking at electrification, uh, you, you could break it down into two things. You look at, well, what does it take to build an electric car? And will that change and, and, and electric infrastructure? Well, you cannot replace copper in terms of uh, what's, what's required to build an electric car. And copper, you, you require about three to four times as much copper to build an electric car versus an internal combustion car. Uh, and to build an electrical grid, you know, copper is a very important part in it. You know, in some instances, I'm sure they'll substitute it with aluminum or other things. Uh, but in general, copper will be needed there. Now, in terms of batteries, the problem I see with battery metals and people, you know, quote battery metals. Uh, when you're, you know, if you're short-term trading these battery metals, great. But long-term, here's my my thoughts on battery metals. When you take a look at them, I don't think there is a single scientist in the world that is is working on a battery and and expecting to to put the levels of cobalt in that battery that are currently in some of the batteries now. Everybody's trying to engineer out cobalt. Uh, cobalt's reasonably expensive. The biggest risk to cobalt, there's only really one source of it in the world, which is uh, uh, sorry, the Democratic Republic of Congo. I've been there. I've done business there. I know the routine. Trust me, you don't want to uh, base the entire electric revolution on the politics of mining cobalt in Congo. So. I think it's very, very wise to be engineering out cobalt. It rep represents about 80% of the world's cobalt comes from there. Trust me, you'll want to engineer out cobalt or certainly minimize the impact cobalt has. So around the world, scientists are designing these next generation batteries and they're trying to minimize cobalt. Another one they're trying to minimize too is, uh, is nickel. And so they're trying their best to minimize it. And then there's other, there's other technologies, as you know, uh, that are up in the air. I've heard, you know, of batteries that require that are using they're using iron iron ore. They're they're using zinc. They're using some other metals to replace some of the other ones. And some of them are, are even replacing lithium. So, for me, as an investor that's not smart enough to predict the future as to what metals we're actually going to need for these for the next generation batteries. Um, I think the safest bet there is is copper. Copper is uh, is where it's at. It cannot be substituted, and it's used to build the infrastructure and the cars, and is used in the batteries. But battery technology is going to change a lot over the next uh, in the coming decades. So uh, to go out there and spend six years building a new um, a new cobalt mine or whatever else, expecting it to be used in batteries, I think is a risky proposition. So. 
That's okay. Now, now, what about nickel? Maybe I misunderstood you, but I, I thought you were bullish on nickel. It sounds like you're saying they're they're trying to engineer it out. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are trying to engineer out nickel. They're trying to reduce it. I am I am bullish on it because <clears throat> you know um, it's uh, it, it is a it's a tricky commodity to find, especially the higher grade depo- the better deposits, which are nickel sulfide deposits. I've been looking my you know, the, the most of my career for nickel deposits are tough to find, and uh, uh, nickel sulfides are the creme de la creme. So they are um, they're they're going you know nick, nickel will be used for for other purposes other than other than batteries. And um, I, I'm I'm positive on nickel. Anytime there's a good nickel project, I seriously will look at it very very hard. But they're very very rare and. Uh, the good thing about nickel is you'll find nickel in Indonesia, you'll find it in Canada, you'll find it in uh, around the, you know, in, in Russia. So it's much more diversified than Congo. And uh, of the battery metals to be engineered out, uh, it would not be um, the number one project, priority of engineers to engineer it out. Cobalt is the number one priority, I think, to, to engineer out of batteries. And nickel, they'll just more so do it just on the cost side. So if nickel runs too high, they'll just try and engineer out as much nickel as they can, or use as little as they can. But uh, I'm always on the lookout for a good good nickel project. They're so rare. Okay. We got a question about one uh, N-I-L-S-Y. Is, is that a, a nickel project that you are looking at at all? You know, again, I have not heard of, uh, I have no idea what that symbol stands for. And that, that's too many, too many letters for the Canadian exchange. N- I, I, I must admit, I, I'm not familiar with it either. If you are going to, I'll say this to the viewers, if you are going to ask about a name, please give the ticker and the name of the company. Uh, yeah. We, I, I wish I knew every every ticker in the world, but unfortunately, I do not. Um, but, but in our pre-call, this, this might help give a little bit of a picture. You said that there really are not a lot of good nickel projects out there and that you should be cautious of just buying a company because it's got nickel in the name. And that that is sort of a thing that people do because there aren't that many projects. Yes. Yeah. I took a bit of flack on Twitter for uh, for beating up on a nickel project the other day. So um, yeah, they're very uh, they're very tricky to find. <clears throat> and for myself personally, right now I only have uh, until recently I had zero nickel investments. And I haven't had any for at least ten years. That gives you a level of difficulty for me to find a good nickel project. Um, Good nickel projects right now. There's a number in Canada, but they're owned by. They used to be owned by uh, by Inco, International Nickel Company, uh, and but they got bought out by Vale, the big Brazilian mining company. So uh, that's a bit of a problem. And there used to be obviously Falconbridge used to be a big player, so they're now in a big conglomerate. So a lot of the really awesome nickel projects are stuck in with these majors, and they're holding on to them firmly and not letting go. But um, so you really have to be cognizant. And, and with uh, nickel, there's a lot of real intricacies with respect to metallurgy and smelting and logistics that a lot of people that are neophytes to the business aren't that, aren't that familiar with. But uh, just recently, uh, I am reviewing one nickel project that I have a small investment in, which I think could be interesting, but it would be an early stage one. But uh, they're very tricky to find, uh, and uh, unfortunately, right now, I do not know of a single public one that I would uh, I would put money in at, at the present time. 
Okay. All right. We, we did get a name of the company. It sounds like we already have our answer on it. Um, but Nor Silk Nickel is the N-I-L-S-Y. Um, and then people also asked about uh, FPX Nickel and Canada Nickel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Canada, Canada Nickel was the one I wasn't a super big fan of. Um, yeah, it has a project just north of an old hometown I spent four years living in. I used to live in Timmins, and it's just north of Timmins. Um, Timmins is the probably Canada's uh, biggest gold camp. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. So it is, I, I grew up four years as a kid in the in Canada's biggest gold camp, and I toured uh, mining properties in when I was 1969. Uh, so, like, I, I my, my neighbor worked in a mine. I got a mine tour when I was like five years old. So, mining, I've been around mining for a while. Um, the, the problem with that one, of course, is <clears throat> is you just look at the grades and you just go, okay, the grades 0.3 and the recovery ratios 50%. Then you go 0.15%. Nickel, and you go well, 0.15 percent. Well, then that's for every percentage point that's in the for a metric ton that's 22 pounds. You work out 22 pounds, multiply it by the nickel price, and said, "Okay, can you can you mine it for that price after you've taken the overburden, after you've dealt with the pit wall design, after you've dealt with the stripping ratios, and then okay, and then you've got you're dealing also with um, uh, a unique uh, a, a unique uh, nickel in a unique matrix." Uh, geologically, which um, is perhaps not as optimal as finding nickel in, in let's say, a penlandite form. Or, or, but So it gets pretty tricky on the metallurgy front. So if you've got what I consider low, very, very low grade and you've got reasonably tricky issues with respect to, to metallurgy, and then, okay, let's say you get through all those hurdles, and then the smelters are, are not very nice people, and they... Uh, they totally uh, take advantage of you when you take your ore and you take it to a smelter and say, can you give me the metal back out of that? And they say, well, yeah, well you know, yeah, well, we're, uh, you know, we're not going to give you all the metal back. We're going to keep a bunch yourself. So that's, that's the issue. So when, when I look at a nickel sulfide, and this is why I'm not a fan of candle of the nickel, when I look at one, I'm going, I want multiple percentages of nickel rather than 0.3 nickel. And I would want better recoveries than 0.5. So when you start working at that, it's just, it's not for me in $30 nickel environment. You know, if uh, nickel was to go to 30 bucks, like many multiples is a spot price. And I know it's I think spot price around seven or eight bucks now. Um, but, you know, in, you know, pigs fly in a $30 nickel environment, I guess. So, so people buying that are, are thinking, uh, well, you know, with all this demand for uh, for nickel for electric vehicles, well, we're going to buy uh, Canada nickel because um, because the, you know it's obvious to everybody the price is going to the moon, and um, I'd rather uh, buy nickel companies that today make would make a ton of money and are extraordinary at today's price levels, just in case that doesn't happen. Okay. Well, there was one. Uh resource that we haven't touched on yet that, that you mentioned is one that you're particularly bullish on, which is metallurgical coal. So that's that's more for the the big infrastructure projects that you're talking about. It's it's needed to make steel. Um, what are you looking at there? And I guess for people who, you know, don't know the difference between all the different types of coal out there, can, can we start there? Yeah, the biggest difference is when you look at the coal from highest quality to lowest quality, when you, um, the 
I guess the, the environmental greenies are talking about the the bad coal. The bad coal is the stuff that's just you pull it out of the ground and you burn it and you uh, generate power. That's generally what the low quality coal is used for. For and that's called thermal coal. Now the high quality coal, uh, which is um, um, which is you know there's a number of different factors to consider it high quality. That high quality coal is used uh, in uh, the making of steel and it's called metallurgical coal. So um, I'm not positive on thermal coal, but I'm positive on met coal. The reason I'm not positive on thermal coal is around the world they're trying to phase out coal, okay, and in burning, which is the right thing to do, right? We don't want to be burning coal to generate electrical power to power our vehicles that we think are green that are actually really coal powered. So you got to remove coal from the grid or the whole electrical revolution doesn't really matter. So for the, the next number of years, um, we're going to need a lot of steel for these infrastructure programs. And going into steel, we're going to need iron ore. You're going to need metallurgical coal that provides the carbon for the steel. And then, of course, there's a couple tweaks with respect to different types of steel, whether you need a little bit of molybdenum or whether you need a little bit of nickel or you need some other uh, other small small amounts of metals. But um, met coal is needed for steel. And I'm involved in a, a really nice met coal project in northern Canada. And... Um, so uh, I'm pretty optimistic on that. And the best part of uh, the, the situation is it's, it's, it's the only Met Coal company publicly traded I know of in Canada. And uh, so nobody understands it. So it's trading super duper cheap. And um, it has tremendous upside because of that, because nobody understands coal. Nobody, a lot of people don't understand the difference between thermal and Met Coal. And with only one coal company out there, that's Met Coal. Nobody understands it. There's no multiples to compare it to. So it's trading at... Last I looked, it's trading at 15 cents per ton in the ground, which is super cheap given, you know, Met Coal is depending on the quality and where it is between north of 160 a pound and to, sorry, per ton to 200 a pound, a ton. So if you're buying something in the ground in Canada in a great mining jurisdiction as part of a huge, a huge deposit that's quite economic and you're paying 15 cents in the ground and you can sell it for $200 in the, $200 once you, yank it out of the ground, put it through a wash plant, and get, get it out to the ships. There's quite a bit of margin in there. So I'm, I'm betting that it's not worth 15 cents, but it's not worth 200 in the ground. So um, comparable transactions have taken place in the uh, two, three, three plus dollar range in the ground, which is, I believe, prudent. So we'll see if it can move from 15 cents to the three dollars. There's a fair amount of leeway in there. And if we only get a dollar 50 or two dollars, Again, that's uh, a 10-bagger there. So that's why I'm excited about that particular name. All right. Well, you said it's the only one that's publicly traded. Do you, and can, do you, can you give us the, the ticker, or are you going to make everybody go home and, and do some digging? Okay. Well, no, it's, it's, it's an easy one. It's uh, called Colonial Coal, symbol C-A-D. And um, the, it's basically a very simple situation here. We're, we're, the, the deposits have already been drilled out. Everybody knows where they are. All the technical studies are available. <clears throat> it's just a matter now that uh, um, who it gets sold to and for what price. So if you're into sitting around and waiting for that to happen, it's a good investment. But I'll tell you, sitting around and waiting for uh, for big companies to buy you out, uh, it's fantastic when they happen. But man, you need patience. And I've I've had this stock for a number of years, and you know, little by little, we're grinding it out. And I'm sure they're making uh, progress little by little towards eventually getting this company sold. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I want to switch gears here over to, to precious metals. There's been a lot of focus. Obviously, gold kind of broke down a little bit this week, touched uh, 17 into, into the 1700s uh, for the first time in a while. And then as well, there was all of this, uh, what I, I believe to be nonsense about you know a, a silver squeeze going higher. Um, so I, I would just like to first start out with talking about you know where do you think we are in the precious metal cycle? And when you're thinking about different precious metals, metals, you know, why do you go with gold versus silver? Okay, well, first of all, I like gold way better than silver. When you, I have, uh, let's, uh, you know, I have bars of silver and I have bars of gold, and the bars of silver, they all tarnish up, and for per value, they take up so much more storage space than, than the gold. So, I don't like the tarnishing of silver, it's just not ideal. I remember going to the Bank of Nova Scotia's vault, I had a friend uh, who, um, who, who, organized a tour for me, which is very, very kind in, in Toronto at the big vaults there. And you walk in and you see these skids and skids and skids of silver, uh, these big silver bars, they're all tarnished. And uh, and I walked in, okay, well, where's the gold? When they take me to one cabinet, they also open up the cabinet. No, here's all the gold. And, I said, and, and the amount of value in that little cabinet. So the store of wealth per, uh, you know, per, per square foot and, and cubic foot is quite, uh, quite robust and, and you just see it sparkling gold just like the day it was mine versus the old old tarnished old silver um that you know that's sort of my my view on why i'd rather have gold than, than silver silver the other issue too is uh is for is it, it is a byproduct metal to a certain extent and uh so um that means basically when other commodities are being mined they'll get silver silver in their concentrate and so that silver will be mined regardless of the price of silver. The silver, like uh, your, uh, let's say you're a platinum palladium mine or a lead mine with some silver in it. Well, it doesn't matter what the price of silver is, it matters what the price of lead is. And um, the price of lead is economic. That silver is going to be produced, whether the silver is $5 an ounce or $25 an ounce. So you have this, this byproduct hitting, hitting the market. So I haven't been a fan of silver there. The other one is there is not... Um, there's not a, a company that I consider, that, you know, the creme de la creme silver company with the creme de la creme massive silver deposits. Generally, silver deposits, when you're, they're only silver, are generally smaller, and they're throughout Mexico. Mexico, I don't particularly like as a country to mine in, or they're, they're in, the, let's say, the northern U.S., like around Coeur d'Alene or wherever. But, so they're generally smaller mines if they're silver only, and then you're also dealing with the byproduct issues. Whereas gold... You're looking at well, you could buy uh, big, big companies like Newmont and Barrick, and Barrick has massive, massive gold uh, projects in Nevada. There's some massive mines in Nevada that only pro only produce gold, and uh, they're amazing. And uh, that's another reason for it. And um, so when I take a look at, let's say, on the, you asked sort of my, I probably want my view on, yeah, yeah, on gold here. Well. You know, a lot of a lot of people got behind gold and they ran it. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I'm a bull on gold uh, long term. I believe um, eventually all this money printing will will impact things, and the price of everything that we all buy every single day is going up and up and up. And gold is a tremendous hedge against that. And you just buy and you park it away in a safety deposit box, and you're you're good to go, right? Um, now, the issue with this most recent run in, in gold is is a couplefold. Um, what people sometimes forget is that, well, let, before the speculators jump into gold, and they, they weren't there for a good long period of time, the gold market gets along fine without these speculators. And 
who buys the gold? Well, the gold is often bought by central banks, or let's say the, the big buyer is also, let's say, the typical Indian consumer who buys it for a store of wealth and for weddings. And so the Indians are from India are um, a big buyer of gold. Well, you take gold from twelve, thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred dollars, and you run it up to nineteen hundred dollars an ounce in the midst of a pandemic by a bunch of speculators out of the, you know, out of, out of the U.S. or globally. Um, if I was an Indian consumer, I'd say, well, you know, hey, hey, you guys ran this up pretty good. I'm going to back off my consumption of gold. So that's what's happening now is the, the primary demand for gold is being destroyed because uh, a, a lot of the uh, typical consumers are, are dealing with sticker shock. And they're saying, well, listen, I could postpone my purchase of gold. I've seen this before. It'll come off and I'll buy it, I'll buy it at a later date. So anybody who could postpone their gold purchases are, are doing that. And then... Uh, the central banks are, you know, pretty much doing the same things. We're fighting fires all around the world in our economy of COVID. Do, where in the priority list is buying gold for our central bank right now, especially after, a, you know, many hundreds of dollar run? So primary demand has been hurt. And then you've got speculative money going in. Well, speculative money is all well and good until speculative money gets bored and goes, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, little dog saying squirrel. And they're off to somewhere else. So they're dumping their gold, they're moving somewhere else. So I think we're so kind of in that consolidation phase now. I'm bullish on gold long-term, but it's ran pretty hard, pretty fast. The market has to get used to these new prices and uh, without the speculators driving it. And I think the speculators are moving on to something else. And um, so we'll see where they go next. So um, hope that gives you a flavor for kind of where, where I'm at. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. No, that's great. And actually, we got two questions one from Christian and one from Vladimir, who both want to hear about Soul Gold. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, again, uh, uh, people who follow me on Twitter, uh, I haven't necessarily been super kind towards the uh, CEO of Solgold, and I've been calling for his replacement for a little over a year. And uh, that was announced here fairly recently. I guess some of the other shareholders agreed with me that he needed to be replaced. And uh, he's in the process of doing that. Uh, throughout the past year and a half, maybe in fact, possibly three years, in my conversations with uh, the CEO of Solgold, he and I have uh, you know, locked horns and disagreed in quite a number of things. And I believe the strategy he was following is, uh, was quite flawed in quite a number of things. And um, so I've had large disagreements with him. And so I guess the board and other shareholders started to share my view on that and he was replaced and he'll be I think, replaced by the end of March. And uh, I think possibly the reason uh, these people are asking me about it today is uh, Solgold has um, just today announced that they're going to be delaying their pre-feasibility study and possibly re-engineering it. Um, that's, of course, another you know problem I had with uh, with Solgold is you know the, not only the you know anyways well. Uh, I've had a problem with a number of things they've done, and uh, their their pre-feasibility study, they've been uh, delaying it forever, and now they come out to say that uh, it's going to be delayed for another 
12 months pretty much. So um, it's not, again, it's not something I would have done. So uh, Nick is still in charge until the end of March and uh, they're still doing things that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. So uh, I'm hoping at some point the board of Saul Gold will start doing the right things. Um, they're starting to do some things that are correct, but there are some obvious moves that I think they should be doing that would create value for, for everyone who's involved in the situation. And the situation is very unique in that, for instance, if you look globally, of the top 40 drill holes ever drilled into a copper porphyry, Soul Gold has drilled 17 of them. Some of the drill holes are a kilometer and a half long, 0.93% copper. A kilometer and a half long copper intersections in this deposit. This deposit is world class. We have investors like BHP, largest mining company in the world, Newcrest, largest gold mining company in Australia, Franco Nevada, the largest and most respected um, royalty company, just recently put a royalty on this project. The project is good. The way it is being managed, I cannot say that I agree with. So I please, please hope the board of directors will start, uh, you know, working with some people who, who have some ideas that we think will actually uh, work to add value for all shareholders. And um, so let's hope we have good things coming uh, because uh, the other good thing about it is not only do we have tremendous stakeholders in this project, we also have, uh, we're also in the early stages of what I believe will be a tremendous copper bull market. So a lot of good things are happening. Uh, they've had some missteps. It's not that I couldn't foresee what they were misstepping on, but you know, when you watch somebody walking towards and stepping on a landmine, you try and warn them, but if they don't want to be warned and they don't want to listen to you and they, so anyways, let's hope for better cooperation and better decisions made out of solid gold going forward to maximize value for all solid gold shareholders. Okay. Well, you know, so you talked about a project that you didn't like and you wouldn't touch. This is a project that you like, but you don't exactly like how they're running it. How, yeah. you know, talk to me about that, that dynamic. And when you, when you give up, when you give up on a project, you're like, they're, they're never going to get this one right. They've got the greatest piece of dirt I've ever seen. Great results, but my God, they are never going to, to make this thing an economical mind. How, how do you go about that? Oh man, it's been the bane of my existence, Max. Um, I've been doing this like just at Rosso for 22 years and I've been in the business 35. So the number of times, Max, I have seen a tremendous discovery mismanaged uh, to the detriment of all shareholders. It, it, it pains me. That's why I was so vocal about what I believed Solgold was doing. <clears throat> but management is very, very key. Now, the problem we've got here is no different than any other industry in that, you know, you see this, you see it in technology, right? You've got technology guys, the guys who start the technology companies and they're the entrepreneurs or the go-getters, but then they just can't manage it at all. And they blow up the company. We saw it with Steve Jobs in his early years, right? Steve Jobs, tremendous entrepreneur, but he just couldn't handle the management of things. Then he went back and he eventually came back to Apple later on with some of those skills and made a great company of it. Well, the same thing is in the mining business. For instance, with Saul Gold, Nick Mather, <clears throat> he took a discovery that was... Uh, Initially, you know, it was there was some sniffs of a discovery made by Cornerstone. He took it, made a big discovery. Okay, but but then 
you then you start saying, well, I'm good at making the discovery of a tremendous asset. I've got BHP and Newcrest backing me. I'm going to take this forward. And then, then you start thinking you know everything about everything. And then you start making mistakes. So management is a bit of a problem. But my experience with these, in the end, a good deposit with the right shareholders, which which Saul Gold has, and the right, right stakeholders, all working towards the same goal, will eventually get these problems sorted out. But we run into the same issues you run into in technology companies or whatever, where the entrepreneur wants to take it to the end, but may not have the skill set or judgment to do that. So we're getting that transition there, and we're moving on with Saul Gold, hopefully, and they'll start making some better decisions going forward. Okay. All right. Well, I want to kind of close things out with a, we've got yeah. a lot of great questions from the audience. Um, I'm going to try and get through as many as we can, but let, let's try and make it like a lightning round here. See, see how many we can get through. If, 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 you can't, if you can't comment on the company, you don't have a view, that's fine, but, but we'll see how many we can get through. So um, Patrick wants to know if you have any comments on rare earths. Okay, rare earths. Yeah, people say uh, rare earths in China were concerned. National security, especially Americans, are freaked out. There's no rare earths in the world, and China controls all the rare earths. There are, don't worry, folks, there's rare earths all around the world. No worries there. We don't have to worry about China for rare earths. Why are they coming out of China now? Is because in China, they do not care about the environment as much as we do in first world countries. So if we in Canada took one rare earth and we had to compare our rare earth mine in China versus Canada, our costs will be much, much higher. So we cannot compete with China. Hence, China has the entire market. So the buyers, what are they after? The buyers are always after the lowest price of the commodity. So until they say, listen, we want to look at the entire environmental impact of this particular rare earth, and we're willing to pay triple the current spot price to have it manufactured or to have it mined and uh, processed in Canada or any other first world country uh, around the world. Until that happens, we're going to be relying on China for uh, a lot of these rare earths. So uh, that's that's sort of my quick and dirty on, on that. There are rare earths around the world. Trust me, all the rare earths aren't stuck in the, the ground under China. They're elsewhere too. Okay. All right, so we got some questions to go back to copper. Um, a question, what about FCX, and are there any copper projects that, that you would recommend right now? Um, symbol SEX is? Uh, F FCX. Oh, Freeport. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a big, uh, big company guy um, in, for, in terms of following Freeport closely. Uh, Freeport... For the big investors, it's a tremendous company to invest in. Obviously, there's some political risk with their uh, their projects in Indonesia. I've spent decades investing in Indonesia, going back to the BRIEX days. So, um, but they have projects around the world. They're for the big players. Um, if you want some exposure to copper, it's it's definitely one of the copper copper names I'd be uh, I'd be owning. Okay. Um, any other of the smaller projects that you usually focus on that, that you're looking at right now? Well, uh, right now I'm pretty active in the, the Cascabel discovery in, in Ecuador. Again, we, we talked about many of the, the challenges we're facing with that. Um, additional copper projects. I, I like to be pretty focused on my names, um, but I, I, I um, I can't think of one right now that I'm looking at for my next generation, as in to replace it with once we uh, 
once we get Saul Gold uh, sold. Um, so Saul Gold is, is kind of your copper copper play as well at the moment. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. And uh, I can't think of right now another junior copper I've got right now that I'm excited about. Um, but I must admit, I do have... <clears throat> I do have a nickel sulfide nickel deposit that's probably going to be taking up most of my time going forward. Um, but uh, I'm not sure uh, where I will be after uh, Saul Gold gets bought out by, by whoever wants to buy it out. Um, and uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to recycle that money yet. But, uh, you know, but between now and then, hopefully uh, I'll get some interesting new copper projects uh, on my plate that I'll take a look at. But right now, I, I don't have one off the top of my head, sorry. Okay. Um, and then two questions going back to Cole. Nick asked, did Colonial Coal get spun out of Canadian Pacific? No. The um, My recollection is Canadian Pacific uh, spun out Fording Coal, and then Fording Coal was bought by Tech Cominco. Uh, so, te so the former CPS, this is my recollection. Again, this is happening like happened like 20 years ago. So, uh the uh, the those uh, those assets out of CP, uh, I believe they were forwarding, and then they were bought by Tech. They're all they're all in Tech right now. Interestingly, though, good question because you look at where uh, Colonial Coal's two projects are. Their flatbed project is stuck in between two Tech properties. It's right there. We're right in the middle of two Tech properties, and our our Huguenot property is south of that by eighty kilometers. Is stuck between two Anglo-American uh, Met Coal projects. So. They're in a good neighborhood, but uh, yeah. No, well, that's that's perfect because Brigitte asked about tech, as that was the the next cold question was, you know, what do, what do you think about tech and some of their projects? Oh, okay. Well, you know, tech. Uh, I don't. Again, it's a big name. I don't follow tech too often. All I know is uh, on tech, very fascinating company. If you look at the price share price of tech, if you could call tech. Tech share price, you can make a career of it. The number of times I've seen tech go from $40 down to $4, back up to $30, down to $8, back up to $20. It is truly an incredible stock to trade. It has lots of liquidity. You can make a fortune on that. Um, going forward, where I see happening with tech is, uh, you know, tech's a big company, so they're stuck with a lot of these ESG things, right? So <clears throat> what they're going to have to do, and this is just my opinion, right? Like, they want to be politically correct, and uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the people that are forcing politically correct political correctness on the mining industry don't understand the mining industry. So they're going to put pressure on tech, saying, "Oh, you're involved in coal. We don't we don't invest in tech because we because you're invested because you own coal assets." And then tech has to explain, "Well, we're not involved in thermal coal assets. We're in met coal assets. that need to make steel, and we need steel to make those Teslas that you guys are driving." But you know, I, I could I wouldn't be surprised if I see tech spin off their coal assets just to say, okay, guys, we're gonna give up and explaining the difference between met coal and thermal coal to you. We've got a, we're gonna spin it off to a new new coal coal company and just do the reverse of the fording coal acquisition. Also, they have a small stake in a and I believe it's called Fort Hills, uh, um, you know, up in uh, northern Alberta in the, the oil, an oil sand deposit, which I think they'll probably, to be politically correct, uh, they'll probably spin that off too at some point too when the oil market's perhaps a bit, a bit more robust. So again, you know, tech is uh, probably has a few more handcuffs on them than I would uh, have uh, as doing what I do. 
And uh, they're going to be under some pressure, I think, to sell their coal assets or to spin them off, even though they're not thermal. And <laughs> it's the way of the world with this ESG thing. It's crazy. Okay. All right. Um, gosh, everybody wants to know about individual names. We're not going to be able to ask every every single one, so I'm sorry if we don't get to, to your specific company, guys. Um Gary asks about the the Canada BC Golden Triangle development plays. So Skeena Resources, Ascot Resources. Do you have any insight there? Yeah, I'm not active in that area. Um, it's just uh, actually right now I'm not that far away. I'm in British Columbia right now in the mountains, and uh, there's north they're northwest of me. Um, I'm not active in those right now. Um, in the last 22 years, we have been 40 uh, percent of our profits in the last 22 years have been from gold juniors. And um, we look on a global basis for them. And generally, um, I look for um, really extraordinary gold deposits. And um, and that's taken me around the world. South America, I was involved in uh, uh, a lot of big discoveries in South America, in, in Quebec. I'm also, my, my biggest interest right now is in Nevada. We're looking at a large scale situation there. And um, the ones up in the Golden Triangle are generally a little different and they're trickier to value. They're high grade gold in quartz veins, which is super duper tricky to model. And it's tricky to know really what kind of gold you've got there. So I tend to stay away from that a little bit. And my previous gold, gold wins have generally not been related to that. But uh, you know, um, sorry, I'm just not active in that in that region. No, that's okay. Um, down in South America, uh, we got two people asking about Salazar Resources in Ecuador. Salazar, um, yeah, my recollection. I'm not an expert on Salazar, but it, that that would be uh, my my recollection is correct. That would be a copper project in the southeastern part of of. Uh, of Ecuador, if I'm not mistaken, I Google it and I know two seconds. But uh, yeah, I'm not following Salazar. In, and um, if it is a company, I think it is. I took a look at it, and um, and I know the people behind it, and I knew the um, if it is the company I'm thinking of. I, I looked at the valuation, and the valuation was uh, was uh, was very yeah. That was my it's my house alarm going off. So that was my. Uh, um, I'm act, and the reason, part of the reason you might ask me, Warren, why aren't you active in 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 this name? I believe I looked at it. It was uh, expensive from my point of view. Uh, it didn't surprise me, given the people involved in it. Also, with respect to sovereign risk, I've been involved in Ecuador quite a number of times. I was one of the biggest shareholders in the big uh, discovery of uh, Fruta del Norte, where uh, which is currently being mined by by Lundin Gold. I have enough Ecuadorian exposure through my exposure to the Cascabel discovery there. So when I have that level of exposure, I don't spend too much time looking at additional projects in the country, company, country because uh, there is sovereign risk there. Um, the Ecuadorian elections are happening here, and you just have to be cognizant that these South American countries, they'll be pro-mining one minute and anti-mining the next. So that's that's sort of why I don't follow it. Sorry. Okay. All right. Well, I think I'm going to have to cut it off here. Is there maybe one closing thought you'd like to, to leave the audience with? 
Well, I would have to agree with Goldman Sachs that uh, I really do smell a commodity market starting here. So um, it's probably not the worst place to have some exposure. Um, and in some of the entrance, and if you're looking for the highest octane exposure in the commodity sector, I would say uh, playing a, high, a good quality uranium name wouldn't be the worst place. I think gold is taking a breather for a while. And, um, but I think longer term, you know, copper should gradually, gradually move higher as more and more people start buying electrical vehicles and getting uh, electrical infrastructure built. So uh, I think in general, the, uh, the outlook for commodities is, is pretty decent. It's not a bad place to be. And I think if you're, not, uh, if you're not active there, maybe you should sell your Tesla, that stock that went up seven times or eight times last year, and think about getting back into a sector that's reasonably cheap that um, would do very, very well if you, if you believe in the success uh, that Tesla will have in order to justify their share price. Wonderful. All right. Well, Warren, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you to the audience. We got a lot of great questions. It's clear that we have people focused on, on the mining sector here at Real Vision. So I'm sure uh, we will have you back sometime soon, Warren. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Max. Have a, have a great day. Cheers. Yep. You too. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com